Hello, and welcome to Wavelength by Resonance, a podcast where we aim to bring you the biggest news in tech from the last two weeks and what headlines to watch out for next. Hello everybody, and welcome back to Wavelength by Resonance. Well, what a year it's been. Uh, We recorded our first episode on the 25th of April, and in the eight months since then, we've covered a series of stories, scandals, and surprises in the B2B tech space, while also predicting what might come next. What's even more amazing is that we got some of it right. Today, I've got Jamie, a returning guest, and new voice Alex Itzer joining me today to go over the biggest stories we covered in 2022, what we got right, what they mean for the B2B tech industry, and any unexpected detours they took along the way. Thanks for joining me today, guys. Happy to be back. Although I would add that um, having been eight months, I am both shocked and hurt that I've only been invited back at this this time. I was expecting more, but, you know, I'll, I'll move past it and I'm sure it'll be fine. Forgiveness is a virtue. And I'm delighted to be here for the first time, Dan. Sorry it's, it's taken this long to be here, but it's been a quite a year and I'm looking forward to unpacking it all with no. Jamie and you today. No worries, it's fantastic to have you both on. So, let's get into it. The biggest stories we're covering today from 2022 are the online safety bill, big tech stock drops and layoffs, generative AI taking a celebrity starring role in the media, Elon Musk buying Twitter, crypto fraud, the chip wars between the US and China, and big data privacy breaches and regulatory changes. So, the first section we're going to do is what we got right, and in a slightly smaller font, what we got wrong. So, the first thing we got right, eventually, was that Elon Musk would, in the end, be forced to buy Twitter. And honestly, I'm a little tired of talking about it by this point, but I guess that's the price you pay for being right all the time. So, in our pilot episode back in April, we said... Elon Musk said he wants to buy Twitter because it's not living up to its potential as a free speech platform and has floated some ideas around, you know, relaxing some content restrictions and balancing it against new laws in Europe, etc. And we specifically predicted to look out for new policy guidelines along those lines. And guess what? We were right. (laughs) And then later on, around the same time in June, we said there was far too much money on the table, about a billion dollars, for banks to let Elon walk away. It did turn out it wasn't even the banks, it was Twitter's own board and shareholders taking Elon to Chancery Court in Delaware to force him to honour his original offer price of $54 a share at a total cost of roughly $44 billion. Uh, I'll have to second your opinion there, Dan. Uh, Ultimately, this story has gotten far too much airtime for my liking. Uh, The richest man in the world thinks he can solve everything by by merit of being one of the richest men in the world, and it's... It's constant week after week coverage. I think everyone now gets the gist of it. Mm. What I would add to that, and I believe we touched on it in the last podcast, is that this is this problem is bigger than Twitter. It's bigger than someone coming in with new ideas and loads of new funds, be that Elon Musk or whatever social media platform. We're seeing the end of social media in its first iteration. So these mm. multimedia platforms... Where fa- do you remember when Facebook first launched? You're like, we got we can connect everything from being friends <laughs> and solving problems, yeah. and we can do everything. And now the ones that are getting the most success, TikTok, uh, YouTube, I think 
Vine, Vine sort of shot was a shot across the bow a couple of years ago, but you do one thing and you do it very, very right, and that's mm. messaging or content. And the ones that try and do everything are getting less and less users and interactivity um, as they roll on. So I think, uh, I'm not saying Twitter's doomed to fail, but I'm saying they really need to change drastically, and I expect this to be more of a conversation in 2023. No, yeah, definitely great point. I think as well, uh, also to add to Jamie's point, it's no coincidence that Twitter's attracted this much attention this year uh, because the people doing the coverage of Twitter all spend a lot of their time browsing the mm. platform. But one of the mm. more troubling trends that we've seen most recently is Twitter uh, clamping down on journalists appearing on the platform, banning some journalists mm. for kind of relatively personal reasons to the founder, potentially. And that's a, it's a difficult trend, and that's something that is quite hard for a social media platform to come back from. It uh, affects trust, and that's where I think into the new year we're potentially going to see other, other platforms if they can capitalise on it and offer something different and unique uh, compared to Twitter, uh, potentially capitalise on that. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be a real a real moment as things shift and Elon Musk single-handedly takes out a big player in the market. Unfortunate is the one that he owns. Yeah. <laughs> so, we'll get more into that in the um in the prediction section later. But um should we move on to our coverage of the online safety bill this year? Yeah. Please do. So, I think the online safety bill's been a really interesting trend uh this year. I think on the podcast it's We've talked a lot about um, how it was likely to be amended a lot this year, and I think that's um, that's proven to be right. Uh, it's kind of floundered around for a lot of this year, um, but most recently we've seen uh, Culture Secretary uh, Michelle Donnellan um, uh, kind of assuaging fears that the legislation is going to be watered down mm. um, and the, the the biggest amendments that we've seen have been um, amendments over concerns about its impact on freedom of expression. We've seen uh, it being removed that it's social media sites responsibility take down legal but harmful uh, material due to campaigner pressure. So there's this kind of balancing act happening mm. between uh, the desire to keep people safe versus the need to preserve the core the core freedoms that we expect in a democratic society on these uh, on these platforms well exactly and i think this has been obviously an ongoing news story since well probably since before we started the podcast but there's been a lot of celebrity faces attached to this campaign sort of championing the various aspects of you know child protection or you know the leaking of you know intimate videos and that kind of stuff and we did point out i think in uh, April that there was pushback by the shadow cabinet regarding government overreach sort of you know who defines harmful content you know what is the wording who decides exactly who falls under the remit of the online safety bill and that was always going to be the big tension kind of the push and pull of this however one thing that we didn't get exactly right is that we thought this would be passed a lot sooner with initial reports saying that it would be well on its way by summer and <laughs> in all fairness what we did fail to predict was having three prime ministers this year along with two ministers for the Department of Digital Culture Media and Sport including Nadine Doris hmm. whose rapping skills you can uh, <laughs> check out in the episode we released in July 
which I have to say are doubtful. It is uh, it is miraculous that someone can get the department for digital culture, media, and sports whilst claiming that you can downstream movies. That is perhaps <laughs> perhaps goes some way to explaining why this bill has been delayed. Yeah. <laughs> so much. Become potentially more of a, a political football than a an effective piece of legislation, mm. but. We'll see uh, which final form it ends up taking and keep everybody updated. So, on to our next section. We'll get a bit more in-depth about how we covered the market volatility and layoffs affecting big tech this year. I think this year we've really seen a major shift in the tech sector with a lot of the explosive growth that we saw during the pandemic really giving way to something that's a lot more uh, cautious. Valuations for tech firms are all being reassessed. We're seeing all these headlines come out of all the trends that were only seem to be going upwards in VC investment and funding all suddenly starting to go down. And this is in part due to the economic climate. Um, to get debt financing is a lot harder than it was most recently. And that's what a lot of companies relied on was that ability to get that cheap cheap debt to support growth. Hmm. And so it didn't really matter if you were profitable, you could just keep getting hmm. yeah. that, um, that financing. And that has meant that what we've seen, and this has been a big thing that uh, is going to be in a lot of journalists' kind of takeaways from this year, is the layoffs that have swept across uh, the tech sector. We've seen big layoffs at Meta, Twitter, others. Hmm. I mean, there's one. There's one study uh, from uh, a group called Layoffs.fyi, hmm. which has said that um, more than nine hundred tech companies have laid off something in the region of one hundred forty-three thousand five hundred employees in twenty twenty <laughs> alone. It's a big number. Yeah, and, it's a lot of people. Um, I think we're going to see, unfortunately, that trend. Continue into next year, the focus is going to be on tight operations, cutting back and lots of pressure from boards and leadership to um, cut back so you're in a good position to, um, to weather the storm as well. I'd add a slight point to this, which I think Alex slightly touched on, but just to dive into it a little bit more. Obviously, all this growth or a lot of this growth or accelerational growth, I should say, mm. can be attributed to the pandemic. And yeah. I do feel like now we are completely out of the pandemic way of thinking where I'm going to use remote work as an example because I think it's the best way to demonstrate it. But like we can do everything remotely and Zoom is the same as being in person. And now everyone sort of realizes, oh, it it isn't like the technology is greater reshaping the logistics of doing work but it's not the same as being in the room and having the emotional engagement or learning as, as it so that sort of shift of tech being the complete solution to everything in the workspace or maybe the cloud can solve everything it has died down a bit which is probably going to be contributing to this change of pace somewhat as well yeah the pandemic was always going to be kind of a natural overcorrection to the point where mm. cloud has always been a useful tool remote working ways mm. to interact with a team across the world but I don't think it was ever meant to be a 100% for all companies yeah, but, all the time and you know back in June we were saying that we thought you know companies like Broadcom or whatever were gonna as part of their takeover of VMware were gonna go through a whole sweep of layoffs you know in their words eliminating duplicative administrative functions but what it ended up being is while that acquisition's still going through due process arms owner SoftBank has done the same thing and cut I believe almost 40% of its UK employees 
So it's big tech, but it's also big tech companies with a with a small T. You know, no one's immune from this. But that mention of ARM, I think, leads us quite nicely into discussing the next big story that we followed over the last few months around the semiconductor chip wars uh, that have been taking the world by storm this year. So in July, we talked about, with the CHIPS Act passing the US Senate, we warned that Nancy Pelosi's landing in Taiwan was likely to intensify this war and this competition in the semiconductor space. And, of course, in the end, it did. I think that was uh, happening live on the podcast we recorded. We prepared yeah. and then we're like, ah, Pelosi's in. Oh, God. Oh, everything's going up in the air. But, uh, yes, I did. I think I did predict this on the last podcast, so I'd recommend users going back in the... Listening to that one. Listening to Jamie's dulcet tones. <laughs> and there has been lots of trade dispute and these kind of legislative efforts to build self-sufficiency with semiconductors and especially for the US to restrict exports to China. And that has all happened since the episode of the podcast, including the passing of further trade export restrictions and the requirement of licenses in October. Uh, and as we also predicted in July... UK-based companies like Arm might be changing their competitive strategies as a result. Uh, and in December, we were proved right when it confirmed that it wasn't selling its most advanced designs to Chinese firms like, for example, Alibaba, because of these US and UK controls. Slight point on this. It's quite interesting, retrospectively, to see how the narrative has changed. Like, this mm. time last year, everyone was scrambling around like, ah, where, where are the chips? <laughs> we need the chips. Yeah. And now... Obviously, I, well, I, we'll talk about the predictions later, but it does seem this war, I don't know that's, obviously I'm not a supply chain specialist, but it does seem that conversation has changed and that there is a bit more confidence in receiving chips with these manufacturings now happening in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I think it's settling into more of a, a cold war, yeah. if you will, than a, than a hot war. And I think as well, what a lot of firms have learnt from the last few years, and I'm not an expert in the semiconductor <laughs> space, but... I think a lot of firms are still very nervous about manufacturing in China. There's been a lot of, with the way the COVID pandemic's unfolded there, and mm. there's been a lot of delays in ports coming out of China. So if we even if we take a step back beyond the trade wars and everything like that, firms are very worried about their resilience, their supply chains, they're thinking about better ways to manage it longer term and that's where you're seeing this rebalancing away from China and towards basing uh, things in kind of the West that you can perhaps control a little bit more. Yeah definitely there's a, a bit of a, a power battle going on there. Now for the next story we're covering which is one that has really kind of burst to life in recent weeks and months and that's generative AI. If you'd like to listen to a more in-depth discussion on this topic, have a listen to my discussion with Ben Wadecki from AI Business in our last episode, where we discuss all things chat GPT, generative AI, copyright concerns, and so forth. In September, we saw Getty Images banning AI-generated images from things like DALI, Stable Diffusion, Midjourney, all that. And we pointed out that a lot of businesses are developing their own AI models based around using huge volumes of training data that's been scraped from the internet. And we also said that these businesses might be in trouble if these copyright grumblings that we were hearing around the media, if that flame was fanned and it really took light. And this was validated by a lawsuit against GitHub's Copilot software in November for copyright reasons. 
And we also had Stack Overflow banning ChatGPT responses, but that was for a different reason, and that was more because people were absolutely spamming it with half-correct or just completely incorrect responses. Slightly pivoting on the points from below and taking a, a popular perspective for the masses. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm all about. Yeah. It is like it is nuts how much generative AI has blown up. Not even in 2022, the latter half of 2022. Mm. And from a, like an everyday consumer perspective and not someone who's maybe not in tune with the copyright thing, it is crazy to see how quickly it's advanced. Yeah. So like the to the everyday layman, like I remember even like two years ago something on a an article on a popular online tabloid or whatever it would say this article has been written by an ai mm. and it'd be utter garbage <laughs> it'd be incomprehensible yeah but now you see this text some of these texts that these uh chat gpts and whatever are generating you're like wow this is this is some cognizant stuff like this could have been <laughs> written by a, a key stage five capable students or yeah. whatever it is so it is it is kind of nuts to just see how quickly generative is like happening before everyone's very eyes and that was one of the things I discussed with Ben was that a lot of these models are achieving success because they're really narrowing their focus and going, okay, maybe we can't build a language model that can do absolutely anything. But if we train it to follow responses and we give it a very narrow, specific, you know, maybe it, it can write business language or maybe it's really good at writing essays and mm. we can really drill down and make it very good at one thing rather than making it relatively mediocre at everything. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And one of the, if this is, again, from a slightly more popular standpoint, but if we, if you have a look, just scrolling through Twitter, at most of the, when people were playing around with uh, chat uh, GPT, most of the most successful responses were when they had these kind of bizarrely narrow um, fields where someone said something like, draft me a, a bio for my uh, career as a barrister in the style of Snoop Dogg or something yeah. like that. And it, it came up with like some really convincing stuff that um, a, a human comedic writer would struggle to mm. come up with. And it's when that sort of stuff becomes indistinguishable from uh, human creativity that these problems do start to come up. And I know a lot of a lot of the art world is particularly worried about the AI-generated uh, imagery because mm. these they're creating these hugely elaborate images and a lot of question marks being raised about the original provenance of them. Are they just ripping off uh, an artist's work and turning it into something that's created by an AI? It's, uh, it's an uncertain world and a difficult road we're going to be on and I couldn't really tell you where it's going to go next year. Yeah, and that was one of the things that we spoke about on the last episode where we're going to be talking about this for the next five years in terms of IP law and copyright and it's going to be a long and protracted process through the courts, I think, to establish a, a landmark precedent case. What's happening now is the sort of stuff that's got deep mind like licking their lips. They're absolutely they're so keen for it because... Understanding language is like one of the key things for building artificial intelligence to actually be intelligence. Mm. So it seems like maybe yeah. because it, now you can see that it's understanding the parameters of language. Yeah, and that's going to be a long road to get there. But like you said, this is a, a big step in terms of mm. if language is how we communicate mm. and we want to create AGI, then that's how we yeah. get there. So start being nice to your AIs because they're, <laughs> they're becoming intelligent. <laughs> Alright, 
now let's get on to the second half of the podcast where we take the stories we've just talked about and see where we think they're going to go next, sort of what they mean for B2B tech companies and their impact on the world. So starting from the start, even though we would potentially rather leave this one out, is let's go back to Elon Musk buying Twitter because I don't think this has got enough airtime this year. But I think like we talked about earlier, it's showing people how capricious or you know, how whimsical it can be when you've got tech companies with a single person at the helm, unaccountable to boards of directors or majority shareholders or a strong executive team. Maybe a sort of more dramatic version of what happened with the pivot from Facebook to Meta, where Mark Zuckerberg really bet big on the metaverse and the whole company went with him and how, you know, that's not always the most cautious move. So it underlines the need for tech companies to be agile and have to build around this kind of volatility in the market with these sort of lumbering behemoths kind of making left and right swerves across your verticals. It really draws a line under the growing importance of content moderation and data privacy. You know, the general public are becoming hugely more aware of the danger in having their data held by the command of just one person with the biases and whims that any one person is subject to. And so a lot of these big companies will be making sure to show that their handling of sensitive data is at least seen as responsible. Just And just as a quick point on that, though, not, not to push back, but I think with Elon Musk, it's quite he interesting. Back. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Feels like you're pushing back very strongly. <laughs> I think with Elon Musk, it, it is sometimes a mistake, though, that we kind of see him as this unaccountable figure who's kind of above market forces where actually the fact that he he did this poll was like, oh, should I resign from Twitter? (laughs) I think that's, and uh, as many people have seen, the poll voted kind of 57% or something in favour of him resigning. Mm. And I think that was almost him. He clearly had some difficult conversations with the big big players that back Twitter. It's got like some of the biggest... Um, funds in Silicon Valley behind it and they they we shouldn't be under any illusions that they might be kind of big cheerleaders for him in public but behind closed doors all these issues that Twitter's had will be playing on them it'll be playing on what they care about which is like the their return on investment and they'll have told him you need to like sort this out or um, we're we're gonna like 42 and doing this poll was his weird yeah his, his get out his way course. of doing it and i think into next year we some people said you could have someone like cheryl sandberg kind of fly and save the day and elon mm-hmm. becomes the kind of quirky engineer uh doing the tech side rather than the actual business strategy yeah with the banks having so much leverage over him with the terms of the buyout they're going to be a huge influence behind the scenes, like you said. It's, uh, if 2022 has taught us anything, is that no one is uh, re- resilient to the market, to market forces. <laughs> no one's outside like, it, yeah. No, no one's, Elon definitely isn't, as, <laughs> as well as someone else. But yeah, I think that's enough of that story. Yeah, let's put a, put a pin in that before we inevitably cover it in our first episode back. <laughs> so, moving on to the next topic, with the online safety bill. I think this has really shown primarily... What businesses, and like I've been saying, social media platforms, they need to be mindful of how content moderation and the pressure for it is going to be so important in terms of avoiding regulatory crackdown. Like the wording of this bill was always likely to change further, particularly if we have any more you know, prime ministers or ministers in charge of culture and digital. 
So developers and content moderators are going to need to work on the basis that these policies might have to change at any given moment and need to adopt frameworks that make that possible. I think over 2022, what we're sort of seeing, despite Jeremy Hunt now trying to get rid of the red tape and free our mm. business, is that there is going, there has been more regulation coming for when it, when it involves operating directly with a third party, be that with uh, content being shared over social media platforms or potentially a, a sanctioned individual who you didn't know was part of your supply chain. Yeah. So we're seeing more and more of this sort of regulation coming through. And what we're going to see in response is more businesses trying to be prudent and operate above any regulation because no one knows what the next few steps are going to be necessarily. So many businesses are going to take a conservative approach and be like, what can we do to cover our innuendo as <laughs> what we can do to cover ourselves so we're not essentially caught with our pants down when the regulation does come in? Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting you said in terms of supply chain, it's almost like when we talk about ESG, it's becoming a big deal to say, you know, how much of your emissions aren't just your company, mm. but the company you're being supplied by and the people using your product. Mm. So maybe that in terms of data privacy or content moderation, it's going to be a thing about where you're getting your data from and having to be very aware of the, the effects. It, yeah, in terms of ESG, I think that's quite like an interesting example because traditionally ESG has been seen as something that you do internally. Like mm. um, we've planted, this is a typical example, but we've planted 20 saplings today. Now it's you can see through your, having the right up-to-date data and the, anal the analysis machinery where this is having a greater impact like oh we've stopped working with that supplier because they're chopping down wood in that the amazon rainforest mm. so yeah I've, that's a massive tangent from the online safety bill but <laughs> i just i feel like part of this dem is demonstrative of how everyone's becoming more aware of growing regulation in all these different forms and what they can do to comply with it and get ahead of it and use it to their own advantage almost yeah it's the old john don thing you know no man is an island and neither is a company mm. like, everything's affected by everything else and we need to stop looking at these things in isolation. And I think, uh, yeah, just to um, add to Jamie's point, I think it's about um, com companies' attitude to regulation like this is they need to think beyond it. Some These are the online safety bills kind of grappling with something bigger than it will ever solve. It's grappling with these huge tech forces that are synonymous with the global economy so it almost comes down to companies to rather than wait for governments to catch up and to try and put in place measures companies need to be thinking what's the best practice we can be following to manage these issues how can we make sure we're not caught on the wrong side of whether it's kind of the use of content on social media platforms or as um, Jamie was saying, ESG or anything like that. It's about being much more proactive and forward-thinking in your approach to regulation rather than a new bit of regulation comes out. What do I need to do to respond? I think putting our B PR hats on for a second is now very obvious to see when... <laughs> we never took them off, Jamie. No, it's always on. It's always screwed firmly on. But now it's very obvious. People are more clued up than ever and they can see when, oh, that organisation has done that because that bill just came in. It's very, it's very, very obvious instead of someone's like, oh, they've fought ahead, they've planned ahead. Mm. There's people in that business that do care about this sort of thing as opposed to, ah, what, what, we need to change <laughs> that sort of attitude. Yeah, there's a big opportunity for businesses mm. to, to get ahead of the curve rather than just having to react. Mm. Just as one final point before Dan inevitably moves us along. I tried to um, one-up him, but now he's... <laughs> um, I think... Jamie, Jamie's exactly right, and we saw this with COP 
27 uh, with the, shall we say, kind of slightly muted actions of government at that, I think, and this is something to put put our PR hats on again, (laughs) Um, a lot of the the attitude of the the companies we work with um, when they're talking to their clients into next year is it's going to be all about um, what can you do as a company to get ahead of where governments are? What can you do as a company to signal, okay, governments haven't done enough on ESG, but we're thinking ahead. We, we know you care about this issue and we're going to take steps to resolve it or at least contribute to resolving it. Yeah, I mean, in a metaphorical sense, the carrot's always a lot nicer than the stick. <laughs> so let's move on to our, our next topic, and that's one of the biggest ones this year has been the, especially since the summer, has been the big tech stock drops and layoffs. So in general, the companies who've been laying off the most employees are the ones who've overhired the most following that, you know, that post-pandemic sort of bonanza of hiring as talent grew increasingly sparse and increasingly valuable. Well, those companies were worried about missing out, and that is why companies like Meta and Oracle hired so many people that then they get to a more lean economic time and discovered maybe we don't have the, the operational budget to keep these inflated teams going. So this is going to mean a big redistribution of talent across B2B tech, but not necessarily a significantly higher percentage will remain on the market in the long run. They just might be at different companies or sectors. So I think this is a good time for startups to try and lure away kind of disenfranchised skilled workers from big tech companies who maybe haven't got the promotions or the, the recognition that they'd have been expecting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Dan. And the focus of this moment is going to be on firms that kind of meaningfully deliver value and have a clear path towards business growth and profitability. There is less and less appetite out there from VCs and other investors for the grand unsubstantiated visions that really defined uh, a lot of the first two decades of Silicon Valley uh, in the 21st century. I think, to be honest, it's a bit of a poetic irony that this realignment that we're seeing um, over the last few months is has timed pretty perfectly with the sentencing of Elizabeth Holmes mm. and Sonny uh, uh, Balwani of Theranos and the dropout fame. Yeah, sort of the infamous poster children of that, uh, that movement. Mm. I think this also ties quite nicely back to the social media I say my social media hypothesis. Other people have said this as well. But it's, you've got to sort of focus now, like, where, where, what are you actually doing? Let's stop pretending that one technology company can solve everything and do everything. Like, where is the value and who is the value to? Mm. Um, hence why the stock drops are sort of laying off. I think you've, we've also... We've kind of seen it with Netflix a little bit ahead of the curve. You, I've noticed recently they've sort of reprogrammed what they're offering and the schedule which they're offering things. Like Netflix's figures have balanced out and I think are going back up again. Yeah, I, I think Net, Netflix is a great example mm. because they, they have their non... They have their ads ads model that they brought in in response to mm. difficult financial returns and that's an example of a company recognising they needed to change. Mm. They couldn't just be grow, grow, grow with the same approach. They pivoted recognised that there was a gap in the market for that and apparently it's um, started to bear fruit. One, one thing I would add to that is it's the sort of change in mindset that it users, it's, it almost gives me faith that users want what's relevant to them. Like the mm. net, building on a Netflix example, 
you can have the best streaming platform, it can have the highest quality picture, it can have the most options, but if everything is like, is it a cake or is it a real thing? Yeah. And most of like the actual <laughs> quality and relevance is, or actually the actual quality of the content is garbage, users go away from it. So Netflix have had to pivot. And we've, we're seeing this with these layoffs and social media offering all these different options and what we've just talked about, essentially. And I think that's quite a nice illustration of it in a, in a microcosm. Moving on to our predictions about generative AI, I think, like we said in the last episode, these copyright issues are going to continue to abound for at least the next five years or so. You know, IP lawyers are going to be dealing with this for ages, and it's probably going to make them quite a lot of money. But OpenAI have come out and said they think they'll be making, I think, over a billion dollars in revenue by 2024. So they've got a clear business motivator behind their, you know, free public access trials and research. You know, it's not out of the... Uh, I'm sure they're lovely people, but I don't think it's out of the good of their heart. And if the copyright issues can be resolved, or at least held at bay, or you know the fines being a, a minimum, there's huge potential for market disruption because these companies could become huge players in content generation and sort of feed into other platforms and services to really provide what they've been lacking up to this point. And there's also an opportunity for startups involved in, you know, fact checking or code correction or spelling and grammar, which I noticed that Jasper AI, one of the big contenders, they acquired a, uh, uh, a grammar checking startup themselves. So there's clearly an opportunity there for companies to evolve alongside these growing generative AI based companies. Uh, one of the big trends this year has been the volatility that we've seen in the crypto space with the infamous issues with uh, Sam Bankman-Fried mm -hmm. and uh, Ruja uh, Ignatova, or the, as she's otherwise known, the crypto queen. <laughs> Huge amounts of VC cash was invested into crypto startups over the last few years. And now we're seeing a huge amount of, kind of caution come through and investors are potentially looking for more safer investments um, that have a bit more of a kind of rock solid foundations than was previously there. In, I mean, this in 2022, we've seen the near collapse of the NFT bubble, these things that suddenly were everywhere. Every every footballer, every yeah. politician. John Terry. Yeah, Where John are they now? In the metaverse. They're completely gone. Yeah, pretty much gone. And that's a symptom of a real collapse in trust that we've seen in uh, the kind of crypto and wider blockchain space. But I think looking into 2023, we shouldn't rush to saying it's all over, there's no, there's not going to be any more kind of blockchain technology. Investors are still keen on blockchain technology because they see it as this kind of route to Web3 tech and a new, more, um, a better way of uh, browsing online that puts the power in the hands of the users. Um, so we should expect, and many of the biggest experts in crypto are predicting that 2023 will be about uh, crypto and blockchain kind of coming of age. It will be about the volatility that we've seen in recent years being replaced with regulation and controls and standards across the industry that keep the benefits but no longer lets it kind of run unchecked as it has been um, before and just as a final point I think the whole Bankman Freed FTX issue and the huge kind of crash of that uh, in the last 
few months of this year was again a classic example as we've been talking about of a founder who'd won over investors with his kind of grand vision is uh, kind of plans to change the world without necessarily having the processes and stuff in place. I mean, or indeed a plan to change yeah, the world. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, when when the police raided his offices, there was just kind of there was papers everywhere, and the the accounts team hadn't had meetings or something. It was it was ridiculous in hindsight. Yeah. The account um, team is him just looking at the mirror, just <laughs> I am so rich. <laughs> and yeah, it's been a sobering lesson, I think that for Silicon Valley and Wall Street and investors are going to be a lot more cautious going forward as as we've been saying a lot today into next year I think the hoodie and the flip-flops and the dream ethos is just not going to be enough in Silicon Valley anymore. Yeah definitely. Finally let's move on to once more the chip wars revenge of the Chips? Yeah. How do you say Sith but right? Yeah. The chip. <laughs> so basically, in terms of what this is going to look like going forward, we're already seeing these export controls having a knock-on effect on even UK companies like Arm. So with so many tech companies needing chips to survive, you know, maybe not directly, but through providers and through the hardware that they're running on, businesses are going to have to get, keep a very tight hold of their supply chain in terms of chips and like you said Jamie maybe they are fine for now but there's always going to be the danger that you know if one country struggles a little bit then another country that's relying on US or Chinese chips or Taiwanese potentially is going to have to rapidly readjust so it's going to be about keeping all bases covered and having backup options. Yeah just just adding to that point really I the legislation that was brought in earlier by I think it was the most unanimous piece of legislation Congress ever brought mm. in. I think it, it's not forever. Like it does run out. I can't remember exactly. It might be ten years. It might be a bit longer. But I don't think this is necessarily well. It's far from over, and it's interesting that we're at the beginning beginning of it. But what I'm trying to say is, if you're Dell and you're making these chips, you're going to do it wherever it's cheapest for you. So for the next decade, that might mean well for the U.S. and Western market, I'll do it in. Colorado or wherever they're doing it over there and I'll pay that premium while still scaling down my operations in China and shipping them over there. And then mm. when the legislation runs out, the the arch capitalists that they are, they'll just they'll ship back over to China if it's not a longer term solution and then start scaling it back up over there. Ultimately yeah. it's wherever is cheapest for them and I think the regulation will have to be revisited um at some point to anticipate this. Yeah, it's definitely something that's not gonna not gonna go away in the future. Yeah. So that's our wrap up of the biggest stories in 2022 and where we think they're going next. Thanks for joining me today, Alex and Jamie. It's been a pleasure to have you both on. Jamie, for the second time. Alex, your your first expedition. While we look back on 2022 and a year in B2B tech. So for both of you, what have been kind of your biggest takeaways from this year? Aside from the fact that 2022 has been really, really bad here, here in the UK, <laughs> from a tech perspective, I think we've sort of touched on it quite a lot throughout the podcast, but that it's going to be a year of simplification moving forward, or it's already started, and it's about adding the value where it actually is. Let's stop the conversations that tech can solve everything. I don't know how many more cases we need this year to demonstrate that. And yeah, the ones that will do well are the ones that focus on a specific audience and a specific offering. Instead of, ah, we do AWS, oh, we can do everything. <laughs> yeah, not the, the Wayland-Yutani approach, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I think from my side, 2022 has been the year of the, uh, the great realignment in tech, lots of innovation, but also a lot of uncertainty. Mm. I think only the brave and the bold firms will survive into 2023. But I think as well, we should remember this has been a year when we've seen a lot of real kind of frontier technologies come of age or kind of seem a bit closer than they were previously from quantum computing research that's improved the stability of the tech for future commercial uses to, of course, we shouldn't, end, we shouldn't discuss this without saying the huge nuclear fusion breakthrough that happened at the end of this year, which has potentially transformative uh, implications for climate change technology. Yeah, of course, we can't forget the, uh, the folks at Argon National Lab who've previously worked with one of our clients, Sambanova Systems. Well, that's all from us today. Once more, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you again for our next episode of 2023. Bye! I'll see you again in six months. (laughs) (laughs) That was Wavelength by Resonance. Thank you for tuning in, and please join us next time.